Good morning. How many of you are becoming unoffendable? <laughs> well, at least you're honest. <laughs> you're becoming it, maybe slower than you like. But, uh, man, last week, if you missed it, we, were, we went through um, our vision, annual vision Sunday. And so if you missed it, the sermon CDs are in the back, or you can listen online on our podcast, uh, just reiterating what vision God has given us as a church. We are Restoration Church because we believe God is calling us to strive for full restoration. There's an old song that's called, Come Now is the Time to Worship. Are you familiar with it? And the chorus of that song comes from Philippians. I need to clean my glasses because there's a spot where many of your faces are. And I, I, you, you're blurrier with my glasses on than you are with them off. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Because there's a time coming when Jesus shows up on the earth and everyone on earth is going to confess that he is Lord. However, the song says the greatest treasure remains for those who worship him now. Because when he shows up a second time, if you have not put faith in him before he comes, you're lost. So even though in that moment you recognize, oh yeah, he is who he said he was, it's too late. I think of the, the centurion that was standing at the cross when Jesus was crucified, you remember? And at the end, after the earthquake and the darkness and all that surrounded Jesus' death, he says, surely this was the Son of God. But can I tell you something? As believers... Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. Faith is the substance. Okay? It's real. It's touchable. It's substance of things hoped for. Not, oh, I hope, but I know that this has been promised, so I hope for it. I believe it. It is the evidence of things not yet seen. So if you and I, as we contend for restoration, we contend for healing of the spirit of all people, that people would come into relationship with God, as we contend for the soul of people to be restored, their mind, their emotions, their will, as we contend for physical healing, because did you know, as Heather already applied, Psalm 103, he forgives all your sins and he heals all your diseases. And the New Testament ties those together. Jesus tied them together. Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or take your mat and walk? He ties those together. Or is there anyone in the room that you have taken a sin to Jesus and he said, mm, I'm not going to forgive that one. I want you to hang on to it for a little bit. No. And if we're going to believe, if we're going to have evidence that this is what is supposed to happen. We're going to fight for it. We're going to contend for it. We're going to believe for it. We're not going to wait until we see it. We're going to start seeing with spiritual eyes. And the reason that many of us are not seeing the breakthroughs is because we're not believing for the breakthroughs. I love that Mark encouraged us today because some of you came in today and you weren't feeling it, but you did it anyway. You know what that is? That's faith. I'm not feeling it, I'm not seeing it, but by George, I'm going to keep believing it. I don't know who George is. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of the time I subbed in seventh grade, and I said, good gravy, what are you doing? And they just busted up laughing. What is that? Good gravy, ha! Huh? You never heard by George before? By George. <laughs> I don't know who George is, but by George, we're going to believe it. And so there are things in your life that you have been promised because of the word of God, you contend for them. And you contend for them until either the day you die and stand before Jesus or the day you see it. Because one way or another, my faith will be made sight. Are you with me? And so that's what we're contending for. And so it's not just about supernatural miracles and healings. It's about what Mark preached on a couple weeks ago, the miracle of being unoffendable. Because how many of you know that's a miracle? But we are contending for restoration in everything. Physical healing, body, soul, and spirit, every part of it. We want the divisions that separate races and classes and genders and generations and denominations to be restored because we believe that's what Jesus died for. And we want everything that he died for to be made sight in our city. And so I'm fighting for it. If you want to fight with me, you keep fighting with me. And I wish I could tell you that every day when I woke up, I wanted to fight for it. But I don't. 
But every day I remind myself, what are you doing here? Get up and give him praise. And so, so many people today just reiterated that throughout the worship service. I hope your, your spirit heard it and caught it and you'll continue to carry it on through the week, even if it does snow. For goodness sake, stop snowing. We rebuke you in the name of Jesus. So let it rain, let it rain, let it rain. <laughs> All right, well, we got to keep moving. Part four of our unoffendable series, and uh, I've entitled it From Rags to Riches. From Rags to Riches, we're going to go to two places in the Bible, Isaiah 64, Romans chapter 3. You're using the Bible. This only works for the Bible in your pew in front of you, by the way. Those are the page numbers. And so if you want to turn to those, and we've been going through this book, Unoffendable, by Brant Hansen. And I, I love it because Brant has a very practical way of just making this really right in our face. In fact, chapter 10, we're covering chapters 10 through 12 today, and chapter 10 is entitled, I Want to Punch Brant in the Face. And some of you may feel like that today, um, but that's exactly what he, the, the point is. And today we're talking about the, the religiosity of our lives. And as we get into this unoffendable, we've been reminding ourselves that we can choose to be unoffendable. Now, we need the resurrection power inside of us to make that a possibility, but we can't choose it. And too many of us as Christians walk around with the resurrection power in our lives, and yet we're so easily offended by everyone and everything. And we justify that offense. We justify it by saying things like, well, Jesus offended people, so if I offend people, then I'm just like Jesus. Well, really, you're not like Jesus. You're trying to be, but you're not, okay? Whenever we start using Jesus offending people as a reason that we can offend people, we're missing Jesus altogether, okay? Or we try to say, well, you know, I'm just offended because it's a righteous anger. You know, even Jesus, and here's the thing. We love to cherry pick verses in the Bible. You know what that means, to cherry pick? It means you just pick a verse here and you throw it out there so you can live however you want. I mean, after all, Jesus fashioned a whip out of cords and he went in the temple and he threw out the money changers. So my anger right now, my offense is righteous just like Jesus. And here's the thing. You're, you're going to be tempted as we go through this series and as we read this book to find those cherry pick verses so you don't have to live your life this way. Go find them. I mean, you can find a verse to live however you want. You can. That's just the, the nature of the scripture. You can twist it to be whatever you want, or you can read the whole book and you can really zone in on what Jesus did and how Jesus treated us, and you can live that out in your daily lives and find the freedom that we really want to find. And so two passages of scripture we're going to look at to kind of start from, and then we'll, we'll kind of pull some of Brant's thoughts out. But I really want to just look at Jesus' thoughts and God's thoughts. In Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah finds himself in a place where the, the people of Israel have been given um, the word of God, obviously, through Moses and through generations, but they've neglected it. They've drifted away from it. You know, it's easy to drift away from it. Please don't think that we who live on the, this, this time period won't drift away. Okay, that we don't drift away from the truth. We can. In fact, Hebrews warns us, don't drift away from the message that you've heard. Just like they drifted away in the Old Testament, just like the people who were religious scholars missed the coming of the Messiah because they drifted away, you and I also can drift away from the message. And we can go through some religious motions but drift away from the point just like them. And they had prophet after prophet who came and proclaimed God's word, but they didn't want to hear it. So they finally come to the point where God's judgment has reached a tipping point. Now, thank, thankfully, God's judgment is always mixed with mercy. Okay, so he exiled his people for a season, but he promised, even in that judgment, to bring them back. There was always restoration attached to his judgment, always. And so if you're preaching judgment today, but you don't attach a restoration to it, I'd say read the Bible again, because there's always mercy mixed with God's judgment. His desire is always for people to find life, not for anyone to be condemned. That's his point. And so here in Isaiah 64, Isaiah's prophesying this doom. And then we're, we're all in the middle of a prayer. Isaiah 63 through 65, we're in the middle of a prayer. And I wanted to take time to read it all, but we don't have time for that. But if you want to read the context, you can. And he starts in verse 4. These aren't on the screen, so if you've got your Bible open or if you want to grab the Pew Bible, you can read along. For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like 
you. Who works for those who wait for him. That word wait does not mean sit back idly, but it means anticipates, looks for, presses into. Like those of us that came today and just pressed into worship without feeling like it. God acts on our behalf. You welcome those who do good and who follow godly ways. But you have been very angry with us, for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. See, they're on the verge of being put out into Babylon. And Isaiah is really, this prayer is like a a humbling recognition of their condition. We are constant sinners. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to you. Now, you got to understand that word filthy rags is literally menstrual cloths. And I used to think when I I read this that it was just like kind of a gross thought. Like maybe Isaiah just wanted us to think, oh, that's so gross. Our righteousness is just gross. That's not it. Because according to the law, if you are a woman and you are having your menstrual cycle, which is something, by the way, you can't do anything about. I mean, it just happens. You are, during that time, impure. You're unclean. You cannot go to the temple. You should not touch other people. Everything you touch becomes unclean and has to be purified. So you're in this constant state of uncleanness. And it's not even really your own fault. I mean, it's just so bizarre. And Isaiah, I believe, picks that to show us that even our righteous deeds, even though we try our best to be righteous, we're in this constant state of uncleanness. Everything we touch is unclean. And now you understand why he's like, we're constant sinners. It's, and it's, it's, he's not saying it's not our fault. I mean, in a sense it isn't because we're born with this nature that's just bent towards sin. So in a way it's not our fault. And so that's the the picture he's trying to tie to this, and we kind of miss that sometimes. But then he goes on, in the end of verse 6, Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you've turned away from us, and you've turned us over to our sins. Now you understand there's a difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is, this is what I deserve. God, don't give it to me. That's mercy. And then grace is, God, I don't deserve this, but give it to me. That's grace. Grace and mercy. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. Mercy says no. We get eternal life through Jesus. That's grace. Grace and mercy working together. Yet, he says, oh wait, therefore, you've turned away from us, turned us over to our sins. And yet, O oh Lord, You are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We all are formed by your hand. Don't be so angry with us, Lord. Please don't remember our sins forever. Look at us, we pray, and see that we are all your people. So he doesn't try to justify. He doesn't try to make an excuse. He just pleads for mercy. I mean, there's a a point in all of our lives where we know we're caught. We know we're guilty. And we don't, we don't deny it, we don't justify it anymore, but we plead for mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. I mean, maybe as young children we cry, hoping our parents will be merciful because they'll feel sorry for us. And then they, they spank us and they say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And, and we're like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Until you become a parent and you understand you would give anything to keep your children from experiencing pain. But you recognize there's a time where pain is needed to teach us something we need to know. And so God is going to give them mercy, but maybe not the mercy they want. He's going to put them out for 70 years, but he's going to bring them back. And so this idea of pleading for mercy is important because... Remember, God is totally righteous and totally just. And if God just looks at our sin and says, okay, I'm just going to forgive that sin and I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. He is no longer just. He couldn't do it. 
You don't think the enemy, if, if God would have looked down at his people and just said, okay, I'm going to wipe out their sins, I'm going to pretend they don't exist, and I'm going to start over. You don't think the enemy would have been there and saying, you can't do that. You are no longer just. God can't do that. So he came up with this plan to offer us mercy by sending his son as the sacrifice for our sin so that he could, our sin could be totally dealt with. He could give us the mercy that he wanted to give us and even give us the grace that none of us deserved, but all of us want, amen? See, Isaiah recognized something that maybe you and I already recognize, that there's not one of us that deserves this. Those of us that were raised in church, those of us who are morally good, those of us who are card-carrying Republicans or card-carrying Democrats, depending on which side of the aisle you think is best, or we're the keepers of the Ten Commandments, we've kept all the law, no matter what our religious pedigree is, no matter what our resume looks like, there's no one righteous. And all of our righteousness, before salvation and after, if it's just our works, are like filthy rags. And then the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, he goes into this long discourse about salvation. Romans chapter 1, he talks about how everyone is without excuse because God has revealed himself. I mean, you can't look at creation, you can't look at our bodies and not realize that there's a God, and yet we push him away. And when we push him away, we don't give him thanks, we don't honor him as God. Then he turns us over to ourselves, just like Isaiah said. He turns us over to our sins, and then we become worse. We get into a worse mess. And in Romans chapter 2, I mean, it's almost like you can see the Jews reading Romans chapter 1 going, uh-huh, yep, you tell them, yep, mm-hmm, preach that sin stuff. Sign of the way that we do in church today, whenever people start preaching about sin and we're all like, yep, the world needs to hear this, the world needs to hear, they need to repent of their sin. Hallelujah, you preach it, pastor. And then in Romans chapter 2, the apostle Paul says, but you know what, you are even worse Because you have God's law, and yet you still do it. You still practice this, and you encourage people to do it. I mean, yeah, your sin looks a little bit different, but you should know better. And then he he turns into Romans chapter 3, and he begins to talk about God's faithfulness to us because he wants to produce godly sorrow, but he doesn't want to produce a sorrow where we all walk out being like, oh, man, there's no hope for any of us. So he turns it in chapter 3, verse 9, And he says this, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, Christians or non-Christians, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery follow them. They don't know where to find peace and they have no fear of God at all. Verse 19, obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Okay, now everyone make sure your neighbor's awake because you need to read this next verse with me, okay? Look at this. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Very important. Next statement, very important. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. That's it. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to show you you are hopeless so that when we tell you about what he did, you are filled with hope. And the way that the gospel sometimes is being preached right now towards sinners in the world is not that way. We're trying to get them to live up to the law. You've got to do the law. You've got to do this. You've got to, this is God's way. The purpose of the law is to show you, you can't. But he did. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. 
as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Now, I know we get this, but do we get this? I know that we, before salvation, get this, but do we get it after salvation too? Do we understand that our salvation depends upon Christ from start to finish? After I believe in him for salvation, is it now my works that get me right with him? Is it now my works that get me filled with his spirit? Is it now my works that get me the miracles? Paul would say, as he did to the Galatians, a resounding, no. Why would you start by faith and try to do it by your own merit? But when we, here's the thing, we subtly slip into this, and that's why offense comes into our lives. Because we've subtly started believing that those people over here aren't measuring up to where I'm measuring up. Mm, this is going to get really good. Okay, And so we try to get sinners or we try to get people to follow the law. But the, again, the purpose of the law is not about changing our behavior. The purpose of the law is about bringing us to Christ. Remember John 3.16? You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He came that the world would be saved. And maybe the cousin, John 3.18, isn't as familiar to us. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So it doesn't say that we stand condemned because we've sinned. I mean, we have, ultimately, but he's no longer counting our sins against us because of what Christ has done. So you're not going to hell now because you've sinned. You're going to hell because you don't believe in what he did for you. Does that make sense? I'm not just splitting hairs today. This is the truth of the gospel. I mean, I understand God's laws are in place, and I understand that God's laws are important, and I understand that the message like this could actually lead us to the place where we say, well, so what are you, are you saying that, we, you know, we should live however we want to live, and we should not, you know, just worry about anything at all? And Paul kind of addresses that too in Romans chapter 6 when he says, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may in increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So in other words, when you put faith in Christ, you become a new creation. He puts resurrection power on the inside of you. And so every day that you actually obey him, it's not because you're a good person. It's because of the power he's put inside of you. But we forget that and we start believing that we're good people. We start believing it's not the power inside of us it, that makes us better than the people around us. It's not the power inside of us that makes me a better uh, Christian than the person in, on the other side of the room. It's not the power inside of me that makes me better than the world. It's because I follow the ways of God. The only reason you and I follow the ways of God is because we've been given the power of God because we recognize it was hopeless. And that's important for us because we start making lists. We start making lists. Who are the good people? Who are the not good people? Who are the good Christians? Who are the not good Christians? Who are the ones that are living up to the right standard? Who, and we don't actually make the list. It just happens in our minds. And that's what Brandt is trying to point out to us. That our salvation is on Christ from start to finish. And we get that at salvation and we come to faith in Christ, but then we try to let our righteous acts earn us a spot at the table. God, I've been good this week, so would you, would you heal me? God, I've been good this week, so would you, would you help me? Or the Holy Spirit moves on us in a service and we feel like we're supposed to share something. Well... I can't really share anything. I haven't really been prayed up this week, and I haven't really been. So it's by your works. 
that you get to offer that gift. It's by your works that someone is healed. So if someone is not healed, then obviously it was because there was sin in their life. Or because, you know, you've prayed and you didn't see the answer that you expected to see. It's because, you know, you haven't lived good enough. And I know whenever we start talking like this, we're, we're, we're afraid we're going to slip into this cheap grace and we're just going to live however. Well, the reason these passages are in here that you have to say no to ungodliness is because the gospel kind of leads us as humans to think that way. And so there's a roadblock up that says, no, that doesn't mean just live however because you've passed from death to life. You have life in you. You can't act like a dead person. You have life in you. But the only reason you're acting like a live person is because you have life in you. So when you're tempted to be offended at people that don't have life in them because they're not acting like a live person, you see the futility of that? You see how much time we spend trying to get people who have no life in them to act like a live person? Now, I mean, there's benefits to obeying God's laws. You don't have to be a Christian to receive a benefit from God's laws. God has a law of sowing and reaping. If you sow, you reap. God has a law that if you shed innocent blood, that that blood does cry out from the ground. So, you know, the laws of God are important. We, could, we should tell people about the laws of God because he created the earth. And he created these laws and the earth operates under those laws. But to expect that people are going to follow the laws without the life is idiocy. It really is. They're not going to do it. And, but what about the people that know better, Pastor Tom? Because I know y'all thinking that right now. It's not the sinners. It's the people in the church. Some people don't go back to church because they've been hurt by church people. Well, can I tell you something? If any of us would, if, if that would be the way that God says to live our lives, ain't nobody going to be in the church after 30 days. <laughs> I mean, the reality of it is just, it's crazy. We're not even going to be married after like a week. Because we're, we're all in this process. We've been saved. And it, that salvation doesn't show up in every area of our lives overnight. And we're at different levels. We see things differently. But here's the thing. Your weaknesses, I see way better than mine. And yours are easy. Why don't you overcome them? <laughs> But we, that's what we do mentally. I don't know why that person acts like that. Because they're not you. Because the grace of God at work in their life is on a different timetable than it is in your life. And if we're going to live unoffendably, we have to understand that. I want, okay, I want you to think about this for a second. If you know that every person on earth likes you, they all like, every single person likes you. Would you stand up? Everybody on earth likes you. Stand up. Yeah, okay. See, because you know why? Because somebody on earth doesn't like every one of us. I mean, here's the, here's the, the, the truth, and it's going to sting. Every one of us annoys somebody. Every one of us rubs somebody the wrong way. And the crazy thing is, is we like to think, well, the only reason I rub them the wrong way is because they're not one of the good people. Yep. And so we make this list. The only reason I rub them the wrong way is it's all on them. And you, we can prove it. I mean, we can, we've got scriptures to prove it. And we've got, we've got like history to prove it. I'm going to tell you, look, I did all these things. But when we keep these things in front of us, we understand that he could have treated every one of us the way. Because all of our sin rubbed him the wrong way. I mean, we know that he loved us, but we were in a condition that he couldn't reach out to us. But you know what? He paid our debt. And so Brant in the book, this isn't in this week's reading, so if you look for it, you're not going to find it. But you're going to hear me say this a lot from here on out. The cross simultaneously stands as a constant reminder of his willingness to pay the bill. You ate the food, he paid the bill. It's a reminder. But it also stands as an indictment on us when we're unwilling to do the same for others. In other words, there are going to be people in your life that eat the meal and you have to pay the bill. And it's not going to be fair and it's going to hurt. 
I mean, if you think that we're only going to be unoffendable when there's no opportunity for offense, you've missed the whole thing. You've missed the whole thing. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about two debts. The one man had the debt that was unpayable in the millions of dollars. It was unpayable. And he did not say that he, he, he pleaded for more time. I'll pay the debt. I'll pay the debt. I'll pay the debt. Give me more time. Well, he couldn't have paid the debt if he was given eternity. That was the point. And so the master looks at him and says, go, your debt is forgiven. He forgives his debt. The guy then gets up, goes outside, finds somebody who owes him roughly $10,000. Again, $10,000, big sum of money, right? If it's not a big sum of money to you, you could write a check to me, two ends in Brantner, and I'll just take it from you today because it's not a big deal to you, but it is a big deal. $10,000 is a lot of money. And so that guy owes him $10,000, and he throws that guy in jail till he pays back every penny. And the master calls him back in and says, hey, I forgave you this debt. Why didn't you do that to... And the master's like, well, that guy should have known better. Well, you know, okay, I'll let him out of jail, but maybe, maybe I'll, I just won't talk to him for a while. I mean, we're not gonna, I'm not going to unforgive them, but I'm just going to unfriend them on Facebook. I mean, I'm not going to not forgive them. I'm just going to, when I see them coming, I'm going to, you know, duck into aisle seven at Walmart and just pretend I don't see them coming. I'm just going to avoid them. I mean, is that what he did? I mean, he even ate with the, the very people that were trying to crucify him. He sat at their table and he ate with them. That's a, and we sit here today and we rationalize, well, God really doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't really want us to pay the bill for someone else's mistake. I don't know. I really think he does. Because he did it for me. We make these lists to try to help us feel better about ourselves and, you know, who are the good people and that person's not as saved as me. And Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 13 that really speaks to that too. And he says, there's a farmer who planted good seed in his field, but that night as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. You get that? Weeds among the wheat. So there's wheat, good stuff, and then there's weeds, there's bad stuff. And then he slipped away, and the crop began to grow, and it produced grain, and the weeds also grew. And the farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, where you planted good seed, it's full of weeds. Where did that come from? And the farmer says, An enemy has done this. So his workers are really wise, and they're like, Hey, should we pull out the weeds? They asked. No. He replied, You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest, and I'll tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds and tie them into bundles and burn them and to put the wheat in the barn. You know what that tells us? You and I don't know the difference between the wheat and the weeds. We think we do. And so when we start making those wheat and weed lists, I think on Judgment Day we might be surprised at who was wheat when we thought they were weeds and who was weeds when we thought they were wheat. I mean, I know that our... Our, act, our actions are easy to see and the scripture does warn us and tell us to warn each other and restore each other gently and point out each other's flaws. And you know why it tells us to do that? Not so that when you've been rubbed the wrong way, you can point out someone else's flaws so that it's kind of like, you know, justice. At least I got to put you in your place. No, it's because you know that if they continue down that path, they're going to eventually come to the end of the road and they're going to be weeds and you don't want them to end up there. And so you're trying to get them to stay on the path that God has intended them to walk in so that their life is filled with peace and blessing and all of those things. It's to restore them gently, quietly, even at your own cost. Even at your own cost. Because our lists really aren't God's lists. Brant reminds us that this list of moral accomplishments, and if you haven't read chapter 10 yet, he'll tell you, unless you're a PK, his righteousness 
surpasses your, your righteousness. Okay, all of the things that he's ever done in his life, he's so... But the crazy thing is, is he, he tells us, when people are in need, they really don't want someone with a good religious resume. I mean, they don't want to come to someone who, you know, reeks of superiority. They want to come to someone who they know, they know God, so that they can understand that God loves them, and those people love them too. I mean, when people are in a pickle, is it easy? are you an easy person to come to when people are in a pickle? Or are you one of those people that are like, well, you know, your actions clearly show that this is where you're going to end up. I mean, I'll confess, I'm that kind of person. You know, because that's how I'm wired. I'm black and white. I can see the end of the road from the first step. I mean, I see it. And so when you come and you, no, no one's going to come to me for counseling ever again. <laughs> Just because I feel this way doesn't mean I act on it. All the time. <laughs> but we just see it. Well, what did you expect was going to happen if you did these things? We love people. But here's the question. Do we actually like them? Brant challenges us in this chapter. Don't just love people, but actually learn to like people. Learn to like them even. Because that's harder than love. I mean, at least in our mind. And so this idea of giving people the right to come into our lives and not expecting them to live up to some standard and not trying to change them, but just love them. This refusing to be offended by people is actually a door opener to relationships. When people recognize you're not offended by behavior, you're not offended by someone's past, you're not offended by, by people that swear, when, when they feel like they can come to you and they can just lay down their brokenness, you're a safe place, that's a door opener. And it's not like we're going to make an excuse for people. It's not like we're not going to deal with the stuff. We're going to treat people the way that Christ treated us. But that's not what Christians are known for. In the book, he, he quotes Lecrae. Everyone know who Lecrae is? Lecrae is a hip-hop artist. He's a believer Okay, so for those of you that are over the age of 35, probably don't know who Lecrae is unless you have children. And those of you under 35 are like, they don't know who Lecrae is. Okay, but Lecrae was being interviewed for a secular magazine at one point, And this is a quote that comes from that magazine. Christians have no idea how to deal with art, Lecrae said, during a September speech to Christian leaders. They say, hey, Lecrae. You can't do that. That's bad. That's secular. You can't touch that. Hey, Lecrae, your engineer is not a Christian. He can't mix your stuff. He's going to get sinner cooties on it. This is real. I wish I was making this up, he said. I mean, I know we can cherry pick right now. The, wor the word says, be in the world, not of it. You're, yep, it says that. Cherry pick. Swish. The article goes on to say, evangelicals adopted an isolationist mindset for much of the 20th century. Non-Christians, the thinking went, carried sin like a virus, and the point of following Jesus was to remain as pure as possible. Christians established their own communities, educational institutions, and music festivals separate from the rest of the world. I'm not saying that Christians should condone unbiblical living. I'm actually suggesting that we start redeeming it. But the way to start redeeming it is actually walking alongside of them. It's actually having meals with them. It's actually participating in things with them. Not sinful behavior on my part, but hanging out with them to the place where I actually earn the right to speak into their lives. Without fearing that somehow my salvation is at stake because we're, we're, we're listening to a secular song. If someone writes a secular song that you have to listen to so that you can say, hey, man, what a great song you wrote. What are you listening to? But we've taught ourselves that we've got to separate ourselves from the world completely. The goal of un being unoffendable is to introduce people to the God who's already reaching towards them. It's not to condone their behavior, but their behavior is not the problem. Their behavior is a symptom. The problem is they're separated from their father. The problem is they haven't put faith in Christ and what he's done for them. That's the problem. 
And you and I have to get close enough to be able to speak to the problem. That really changes everything. Because it means that everyone is welcome. Not just theoretically, everyone is welcome. Our churches today, everyone is welcome. Our doors are open. We welcome everyone until they show up. Until their salvation doesn't happen as fast as we think it should. Until they start making a mess that costs us. I mean, is everyone really welcome at our table? Or are they not welcome at our table? Because Jesus welcomed everyone at the table to the point that the religious people of his day said that he can't be from God. He eats with sinners. You can't be from God because you listen to secular music. You can't be from God because you do this. Fill in the blank. I'm not recommending that we don't talk about issues. I'm not recommending that we ignore things in people's lives. I'm saying let's refuse to be angry about other people's views. Let's really just begin to start serving people. You don't have to pretend the differences aren't there, but don't act like you're going to get cooties if you have a conversation or you have a lunch date with someone who's a homosexual and you never say homosexuality is a sin in that conversation. Because again, homosexuality is not the problem. The problem is they're out of relationship with their father. The problem is they have not put hope in what Christ did for them. And until they do that, there's no hope of transformation. And you and I have to get close enough to be able to offer them hope so that they get out of the lifestyle that they're in bondage to instead of trying to clean them up before they come. The good news is that God is no longer counting our sins against us. The good news is he's never treated us as our sins deserve. And that's not an excuse for us to live however we want. It's just the freedom for us to be able to live. The idea of being unoffendable is a costly message. I came across this book sometime in 2008. I don't, 18, and I don't know where I got it. And I don't know what, how I came across it, but I read it quickly and when I read it, I realized that he made some good points. And me, I had a lot of changing to do. And I hope that as you read through this book, you recognize that being unoffendable is worth it. But I hope you also understand it's going to be costly. And it's not going to look good and maybe won't look perfect. And maybe people are going to look down on us or maybe people are going to misunderstand us. But that's the miracle of the gospel. And I hope as a church that we actually have the courage to step into this idea of being unoffendable. I hope that we have the courage to actually not just love people, but actually start liking people. I hope that we have the courage to be willing to pay the tab for somebody else and to recognize, you know what, I'll just take that hit to this time. To recognize that if I'm going to take a hit here, i got to make sure I get filled up over here. You know why Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray? Because he knew he was going to have to pay a tab for some other people. He knew that people were going to make withdrawals, so he wanted to make sure that he was filled up. So when they made withdrawals, he could give out. And you and I, if we're going to be unoffendable and people are going to come into our lives, and then we've got to make sure that we're making deposits. The two things that I think we need to really focus on today is the subtleness of pride in our lives. And so as we get ready to close service today, here's what I want us to focus on. I want us to know that it's easy for us after salvation to allow this religious pride to grow in our hearts undetected. It's easy to start thinking that, you know, we're here because of somehow our own merit. And it's also detrimental because now I don't dare ask God for something because I haven't lived up to a standard. And it keeps us out of our destiny. It keeps us out of even actually coming into his presence to get the grace and the mercy that we need in the first place. And so we've got to deal with that religious pride in our hearts and make sure that our salvation depends on him from start to finish. The second thing is we've got to deal with looking down on others. 
And I'm not asking you to clear your mind and, you know, try to think really hard because for those of us that make these mental lists, you already have the list. The moment I started talking about the list, you wanted to crawl under your seat. And that's the very litmus test of the miracle of salvation in our lives. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand together. And I want you to begin to process right now with the Holy Spirit what this word means for you. Ask Him, Holy Spirit, am I depending upon the work of Christ for my salvation? Or am I relying too heavy on me? Are you in the room today and you're like, you know what, I'm doing pretty good, me and Jesus. Or are you in the room today and you feel like a wretch even though you've surrendered your life to Christ and you're battling that guilt and that shame? See, this idea of salvation by works, being kept by works, shows up in two different ways, two extremes. Religious superiority and shame and guilt. And if either one of those are anywhere in your heart, repent of them today. Come boldly into the throne of our gracious God who's not waiting here like me. He's not waiting here to tap his foot, cross his arms and say, you know what? Why didn't you think this is how it was gonna go? He's just waiting for you to come so he can take that thing off your neck because you were never intended to carry it. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. The second one might be a little bit harder because if you're in this room and there's a list, you recognize there's good people, there's bad people, there's people that aren't living up to what you think they ought to live up to and they're not as good of a Christian as you are, And you recognize that you have a tendency to look down on others. You're not as willing to pay the bill for someone else's mistake. You're not willing to have a difficult conversation with someone. You don't want to pay the bill, but you don't actually want to go and restore them gently either. But you're willing to say, God, you know what? I want to deal with this. I recognize that I'm creating lists. I don't want to create those lists. I want to treat people the way you've treated me. I want to be willing to pay the bill. I also want to be able to to speak the truth in love to them. I want to restore them gently. I want to be a part of a body the way you've decreed in your word that I should. And so there's a specific call in the room today. You need to repent of any area of pride, the religious superiority, shame and guilt, looking down on others. If that's you, can I invite you to find a place around this altar to kneel? I don't always use that approach, but I feel like today we need to come and we need to kneel. We need to bow our knee and say, God, This is the condition of my heart. Your word is laid it bare today. I don't like it. And I want you to clean it up. I want you to clean it up. I don't want my first reaction to be looking down on others. I don't want my first reaction, even about myself, to be shame and guilt. I don't want to try to earn my salvation. I want to trust fully in you. Because here's the thing I believe. If we really get this, then the righteousness of God begins to be released in our lives and we actually get to start looking more like Him. But if we try to keep earning it, we're going to exhaust ourselves. So if you need to find a place around this altar, I encourage you to do it. Father, I thank you that you love us enough to discipline us that you love us enough to show us what's wrong with our lives. 
But God, I thank you that you are such a good father. That you demonstrated your love for us that when we were in our worst possible condition, you drew near to us. You weren't repulsed by us, but you stepped into our mess. You became one of us and you paid our bill. Every every time you were whipped, it was ours. Every time you were beaten, it was ours. Every thorn in your crown was ours. And you did it willingly for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us to rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not just for our salvation at the beginning, but for our salvation all the way to completion. Do not let us slip into this shame and guilt. Do not let us slip into a religious superiority that looks down on others. God, help us to model this unoffendable lifestyle. Help it to be our first response. And the only way that's possible is if you change our hearts today. So God, today we admit that our hearts are prone towards pride. Our hearts are prone towards works. Our hearts are prone toward looking down on others. Holy Spirit, change our hearts today. Change our hearts today. Produce in us the true works of righteousness today. Heal us. Restore us. God, send us out of this room today as an unoffendable force for you to bring your kingdom into our workplaces and into our neighborhoods and into every part of this community that we touch. So Holy Spirit, do your work in our lives. Release your kingdom over this city, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer and you haven't been prayed for yet, our prayer team is here in the front. If you're at the altars and praying, you can feel free to stay as long as you want. Uh, When you're ready to be dismissed, just do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that want to pray. God bless you as you go. Thank you.